I think those two words are absolutely perfect. And the other word that I would um, add in there that I embrace is community. When you're in that environment, you know, your community is is called upon. There is a real, you know, as much as where we were, you know, our closest neighbour was was five kilometres away. You know, it doesn't seem far, but it but it is quite far. You know, and then the next neighbour was, you know, maybe five or ten k's from that. But there was, but you knew that you could always count, call your neighbour, and they would be over to help with any of the jobs that were on the farm. Or you know, the women would come over if we were shearing. You know, and there were 12 shearers that would be in the shearing shed. All the women would get together and and make the lunch and make the sweets and make the treats. And all the all the children from the from the neighbouring surrounds would come and you know help in the shearing as well. So it was a real community that I was brought up with, and you know the ability to freely and openly talk to people and ask questions of people because you felt a connection. So. Absolutely. Tenacity and um, resilience were absolutely there, but I think community is one for me that definitely stands out as well. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. This week, I have an incredible soul, Keita Gibson. I'm super delighted to share this amazing soul with you. This has got a bit of a money investment property spin to it. So for those of you who are passionate about that and see that as a part of your self-love journey, you're going to absolutely love what this woman has to say. Keita started renovating property for fun in 2003 when she returned home to Australia after being an expat for several years. She's been in business for more than 15 years. She started businesses and purchased businesses. She has invested in them, grown them, and turned them around. She has witnessed and experienced both successes and failures, and she has learned the most from her failures. Keita is an experienced investor, successful entrepreneur, and retired triathlete. She's been a project manager, a mortgage broker, a financial planner, and loves world economics. Keita was 12 years of age when she first experienced starting a business and enlisting joint venture partners. Raised in regional Australia on a large farm, her entrepreneurial skills were developed quickly. Through her business, Ocean Buyers Agency, she fulfills her absolute passion of purchasing property and helping people to achieve strong outcomes. She is a dynamic, enthusiastic, vivacious, and inspirational personality, and her personal motivation is based on the acronym of HOPE, helping other people every day. She's completed a Bachelor of Applied Science in Computing, Diploma of Financial Planning, Advanced Diploma in Interior Design, and has secured her real estate agent license, all of which helps to keep her informed with a very professional, diligent, and qualified approach. To those of you interested in the world of finance, I salute you, I honor you, I welcome you to the Self-Love Podcast. After all, this is all a part of honoring and mastering and caring for oneself. Enjoy today's podcast and I look forward to hearing your comments on KimMorrison.com. You can go to my Instagram page, KimMorrison28, Facebook, you can go to Kim Morrison Training and please make sure you follow the gorgeous 
gorgeous Keita Gibson at Ocean Buyers Agency. You can see that on all the platforms. You will find her a beautiful golden blonde hair, bright blue eyes, and vivacious smile. In the meantime, my dear friend, take care and look after yourself. As you can see, it is another special guest on the show this week, and I am super delighted to welcome not only an incredible entrepreneur, a phenomenal businesswoman, and an extraordinary soul who gives so much to others, but she's also one of my closest friends. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, beautiful Keita Gibson. Oh, thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me. It's such a treat to have you on the show. I know you've launched a new business just recently, and I'd love to talk more about that. But perhaps before we get there, could you give the listener just a brief background as to who you are, where you've come from, and why you do the things that you do today? Oh, yes. Um, So who am I? Well, I um, like to say that I'm a tri a tri, beg your pardon, a retired triathlete. Um, I've completed in many triathlons and um, I am a little bit of a fitness fanatic. I was a finalist in the Queenstown New Zealand Marathon as well. Um, So being an outdoorsy person, I loved ocean swim. So most days you'll find me down at the Mooloolabar Lifeguard Tower in the early mornings, um, pretending to swim one kilometre, Um, That is only, of course, if the sun is out and it's a beautiful day. If the waves are too big, I won't be there. If it's raining, I won't be there. Um, You will find me in the coffee shop. I grew up in regional uh, New South Wales on a country farm or on a farm um, with my dad and mum and I have a brother and two sisters. And on the farm we had sheep, we had horses, we had dogs, cats, chooks, you name it, we had it. Um, So my upbringing was in my terms um, a hard work ethic whereby we were up before the sun came up and we were in bed, not late, I won't say late, but we were, you know, still doing our jobs in the dark because in New South Wales we have daylight savings. So, um, you know, we weren't, weren't home until after dark. So that was my upbringing which, you know, put me in good stead. I would suggest for where I am today as much as, you know, we reflect on our, on our past, we think how hard it was or how hard done we were. Um, it has actually given me a good um, ethical standpoint and also a compassion for other people um, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are probably from a rural background and, and with that there is, you know, financial hardship that comes with that and there is a lot of stress that comes with that because it is very dependent on the seasons and the change of the seasons and not only did we have sheep but we also had um, crops, seasonal crops, cereal crops. We had wheat, canola, rice, barley, oats, all of those beautiful things and even sunflowers, um, when the time was right and even corn we had a lot so you know it was very stressful on my mum and dad because they didn't often know when the money was coming or how the money was coming um so again you know all of those upbringings have have put me in good stead for for where i am and i remember um in relation to you asking me who i am and where i am and where i've come from um you know i remember maybe you know when i was in my younger years probably around seven that that every night um, my parents would listen 
to the TV and listen to the news. And, you know, I remember, you know, the ABC news, the, you know, that dramatical music that would come on, the da, 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 which would be the news was about to start. And I remember thinking, oh, this is so boring. When I grow up, I am never going to listen to the news. I'm never going to listen to the financial element of the news and the stocks and what even are the stocks and what even is this that they're talking about? And then, of course, we would go in to watch the weather because that was important for mum and dad. But my point is the financial markets. So so now where I am and what I do and what I've done for, you know, the, the past sort of 20, 20 odd years is I love finance. I love economics. I love seeing what's happening on the world stage. I, I love looking at charts. I have a, an analytical mind um, which sees me you know, looking at charts and predicting, I wouldn't say predicting, beg your pardon, forecasting what's going to happen with property prices and bullion prices and stock markets and currencies. So, you know, as much as when I was seven, I thought I'm never going to watch that stuff. Um, I'm watching it now. So it's actually quite ironic that that's what I do now. <laughs> so, yeah. It's incredible really, isn't it? We either reject or we, you know, embrace our childhood and there's aspects perhaps of both. But I would love to just go back to the farming situation. And, you know, here in Australia, it's obviously a massive part of our economy and it certainly is in New Zealand, but there's been a hell of a lot of hardship. And one of the biggest things I've noticed here is the extremes, the either incredible floods or the incredible fires or the incredible droughts. How do you think that serves Australia? Is it normal? Is it part of what this whole ecosystem is about? Did it affect your parents? How the hell do you rise through all those highs and lows? Yeah, look, it's a really, really good question. And and I'm not entirely sure how to answer that because I think that, you know, I know in the rural community that there is a lot of, um, you know, I use the word hardship, but there's also a lot of depression and an an awful lot of um, suicide that happens in those communities. And I think that, you know, for some people, unfortunately, the overwhelm um, just gets on top of them and they can't cope. So I guess I was fortunate in in my family that that my mum and dad did cope. Yes, absolutely. We went through we went through drought one hundred percent. We didn't necessarily go through floods because where we lived, we didn't have you know that type of landscape, I guess. but you know, oh Kimmy, it's it's such a t- it's such a big, big, tough topic to talk about. Um, how do you deal with it? I think it comes back to the mind. I know that that sounds simple. I know that that sounds easy, but you know, it's what we do in our in our moment to moment day that helps us stay on top of our mind and and helps us stay, you know, in check with who we are. But 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 with the rural element that you've talked about, we have no control over that. Is it normal? Oh gosh, you know that again is another big topic that that some could say. No, it's not normal. Um, is it climate change? You know, that's kind of a little buzzword as well. There's, there's yeah, look, I, I can't really answer that. Sorry, Kim, it's such a big, massive topic that's, that's so unknown. Yeah, and it's such a individual and personalised situations really and it's something that I guess each family and each farm endures and absolutely responds to in the moment. But what I guess where I want to go with that is then 
the word tenacity and resilience, the two words that keep coming to mind to me when I think of farmers, no matter where they are in the world, and particularly given we've just listened to a number of farmers at the Changing Habits, the Nutrition Academy Summit that we just attended. I think what's so incredible about the farming community is those two words, tenacity and resilience. Would you say that those two words are something you've adopted, that you've embraced, that you've acknowledged in your family, in your own life, or or do you have other words that you would use to describe what you've learned from the farming world? I think those two words are absolutely perfect. And the other word that I would um, add in there that I embrace is community. When you're in that environment, you know, your community is is called upon. There is a real, you know, as much as where we were, you know, our closest neighbour was was five kilometres away. You know, it doesn't seem far, but it but it is quite far. You know, and then the next neighbour was, you know, maybe five or ten k's from that. But there was, but you knew that you could always count, call your neighbour, and they would be over to help with any of the jobs that were on the farm. Or you know, the women would come over if we were shearing, you know, and there were twelve shearers that would be in the shearing shed. All the women would get together and and make the lunch and make the sweets and make the treats and all the all the children from the from the neighboring surrounds would come and you know help in the shearing as well so it was a real community that I was brought up with and you know the ability to freely and openly talk to people and ask questions of people because you felt a connection so absolutely tenacity and um, resilience were absolutely there but I think community is one for me that definitely stands out as well. You now live in a more suburban situation here in Malulabar on the Sunshine Coast. Many neighbours don't even know each other, don't even talk to each other, and they're 10 metres away, not 5,000 metres away. What do you think the difference is? Why do we lead, generally speaking, such an individual private life in suburbia as as opposed to what happens in these country towns? My belief is that people are scared of other people. My belief is that people are happy living in their suburban block and not having to, you know, talk to their neighbour. You drive in your garage, you close your gate and you're in your four, in your, four, in your fence, I guess, is, is the right term. Um, whereas, you know, when I move to a new area, I make sure that I go and knock on my neighbour's door and it may be just just be my neighbour on my right and my neighbour on my left um, and make sure that I introduce myself to them. I think that we've, there's, like I say, I, I believe and I could be completely wrong that there are people are fearful sometimes of meeting other people and, yes, there's introverts and there's extroverts, I get that um, and maybe some people may say that I do lean a little bit to the extrovert side but at, side, but at the same time, I don't think that's necessarily the reason why you can't just go and knock on your neighbour's door and say, hi, do you know what? I've lived here for 10 years and we've never met, which is probably very extreme. But, you know, go and knock on the door. Go and introduce yourself. Get back to, you know, taking, going and asking your neighbour for eggs if you've run out of eggs. I, yeah, I think it's fear, Kim, is, is, is what comes to mind for me why people don't do it. Yeah, agreed. And I'm sure there's other reasons and I'm sure there's many people that don't get along or they've tried or people just stick to their own worlds, which is kind of sad when you think about it, when you compare it, particularly to farming communities. But through that 
time of growing up and obviously learning about farming and community and what it means to live in regional Australia, your entrepreneurial skills started to develop at quite a young age. You mentioned watching the news, but also being turned off by the news at that point, particularly around finances. How and where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from and what did you do to start creating it? Uh, I think that, you know, when we were on the farm, there was always, um, we were taught that, you know, we had to do our jobs in order to make money and, you know, in order to have pocket money, in order to to go and to buy things because my mum being very resourceful was an amazing seamstress. So she made, you know, she made all of our clothes and it was, it was, you know, we weren't allowed to go to, not, not that we weren't allowed, we didn't have a lot of money. So going to town and with, oh, mum, I really want to buy that dress in, you know, whatever branded shop it was, she'd be like, no, I can make that. So it wasn't until, you know, then we would have to go to Spotlight and Lincraft and go through the damn, all the reels of material and then pick buttons and then pick a zip and then pick the cotton. Oh, gosh, it was it was quite time consuming for us when we were children and we did not enjoy it, but now we appreciate it in reflection. But the point is is that in order for us to buy that dress or to buy that, you know, branded T-shirt, we had to have our own money. So on the farm we had pigs as an example. So if we fed the pigs um, and their little babies and apologies to anyone who's listening to this but then when the pigs were big enough we would take them to market but it was our responsibility to feed them and we would you know share in the profit with dad but we would have to feed them every morning feed them every night make sure that they had water we'd have to do that before school and after school and on weekends and then when they were ready for market we had to help dad put them onto the truck we had to go in the truck and the town was two hours away so we had to drive to market with dad and sell the pigs but that was, and then when you got that, because back then you got cash and you got that cash in your hands and you had these pineapples, which are $50 notes, we were like, oh, my God, we just got so much money. So that was kind of the entrepreneurial um, element that started. And then, you know, we had to milk the cow. So when we milked the cow, we had to then make the cream and then we had a separator and you had to use your hand and you had to, you know, wind it up and separate the cream from the milk. And then we would take the cream to school and sell it to the teachers or sell it to the bus driver. So there was always an element of, okay, what can we, you know, not what can we do next, but, you know, an element of entrepreneurship that um, was ingrained in us, I guess, from a young age, which then has just led into, um, and, I'm, and I must admit, um, my brother has a lot um, to do with my entrepreneurialism as well. Um, he um, is an entrepreneur himself and when I came back from overseas, he was the one that introduced me to um, personal development side of things and, and learning share, share trading. So it was him that I must credit, you know, some of my success to in those early, early stages of, of getting into it and getting into business. Would you say then, as you finished, I mean, I'm not quite sure how it worked. Did you go to boarding school? Did you then go on? Because as you did your Bachelor of Applied Science, did you actually do that online? Oh, I guess it wasn't like that back then, but via correspondence? Or how did you end up going from a farming life into getting a university degree? And what made you choose that? 
Oh, and I just need to pick you up on the back then. Are you suggesting that I'm um, ancient? Just clarifying that, Kimberly. <laughs> sorry. Try, tried to be very polite then, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I absolutely went to boarding school. Um, so when we went to boarding school in Albury, Wodonga, which people say it's not Albury, Wodonga, it's just Albury in New South Wales on the um, New South Wales-Victorian border, so, yes, I went to boarding school um, and that was because our local town uh, only was a central school um, and it only went to year 10. So I went to boarding school for years 10, 11 and 12 in uh, Albury, um, which, again, you know, when I was there, I did not enjoy it at all. But now in my later years, I'm grateful for the opportunity that my parents um, gave me to go there and, you know, see see experience new opportunities so from um high school I finished my HSC which was year 12 back then um and went to university in Lismore I went to the Southern Cross University um and to be honest when I left high school I wanted to get as far away from the farm as I could um and so I applied to um university in Perth I applied I don't think I applied to Melbourne because I wanted to move where it was hot um, because I love, I love heat, I love summer, I love the sun. Um, and so, yeah, so I went to university in Lismore. I didn't know what I wanted to, to be or do, so to speak. Um, my sister had a boyfriend at the time who was a school teacher. I thought I wanted to be a school teacher because I loved and still do love children and I love helping others. And, and when I was in primary school, I was, you know, always helping the teachers to get the little kids in line. And um, because we were in the central school, there was only, you know, there was only, it was only a small school. So when you were in primary school in year five, I think it was, you were allowed to go down and or selected to go and help the, the kindergarten and year one teacher to, you know, get them ready and get them in line and get them ready for school. And so I remember that. But my sister's boyfriend at the time said to me, no, you don't want to be a school teacher. It's, it's a lot of hard work. There's, there's never any holidays. You're always working. And I was like, right, okay, well, what am I going to do now then? He's, he's kind of kiboshed my dreams of being a teacher. And so I literally, I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed computing at school and applied for the Bachelor of Applied Science Computing at um, Southern Cross University and was accepted there. So I went to Lismore. Uh, in New South Wales for three years and, and, yeah, completed my studies there. Did that teach you more about online work or was it more about computers? Like how did it take you down the route of understanding money or what was the next step that took you into that real love of understanding money and growth? Yeah, okay. So um. I think, like I say, so after I um, finished university, I fell into a corporate career and then went overseas for a while and um, lived overseas and was involved in project management overseas. And it, honestly, I don't think it was until I got back. And like I say, my, my brother um, and his wife were investing in property and investing in shares and they had a mentor that was educating in in property and in shares and using them both as a tool to to grow your wealth um, 
And so it was through that and their mentor that I started um, learning under him and developing my um, desire in 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 prop. It was shares first, to be honest. I was share trading. I learned about the Elliott wave, which probably means nothing to anybody, but it's just a, you know following the pattern of of the shares and picking the high and the low and and studying candlesticks, which again is another share trading technique. Um, so it was through share trading that then was coupled with the property investing because they were, you know, under this mentor, they went hand in hand. There was a time to invest in one and there was a time to invest in the other and it was all very analytical and it was all very um, detailed. Um, so it was through that that my love of um, understanding and because I have an analytical problem-solving mind and a thirst for knowledge that my um interest and desire in economics continued and and grew from there. Let's look at today then. Let's think about what's happened in the world over the last couple of years. Let's have a look at the world economic um, feasibility and where we're at. I'm going to go in hard. Do you think we're stuffed? Do you think we're in a crisis place when it comes to the money and how we've been printing money, it seems, for a long time now? Give us your overview of what the last couple of years have done because I'm sure there are many extremes and many things people may not have ever even been able to predict. Yeah, um, going in hard, that's a good terminology. Um, What I think is that in 1970 we came, uh, uh, the United States came off the gold standard Um, So the president at the time decided that the currency did not need to be backed um, going forward as an asset-backed currency. And then my understanding is that then money was printed freely. They call it the fiat currency, F-I-A-T. You can research that. There's a lot of really great information on YouTube. There's a guy by the name of Mike Maloney on YouTube that talks a lot about currency and money and the difference in currency and money and my point is is that fiat currency is not backed by anything it's it's like playing monopoly it's just paper it's not backed by anything so there's you know there's a theory that we may be going back to an asset-backed currency, which therefore means that, you know, the, the value of gold and potentially silver will increase. It may not. I, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. We can't forecast these things, but there's a fairly good possibility that that we may. Are we stuffed? Um, look, I, look I, I don't believe that that's that that's necessarily what's going to happen. I think that, you know, there's definitely an opportunity for, for everybody to, you know, make sure that they have, you know, enough savings and to make sure that if they can, that they are invested in in hard assets and hard assets are property and gold and silver. You know, we're moving into this period of of inflation and interest rate rises and, and what does that effectively mean? It means that hard assets are Um, you know, a great investment tool for people to be investing in at this point in time, you know, and and, and in that which, you know, we can fall into this conversation which may not have been where we wanted to go but, you know, with with inflation and interest rates increasing, you know, if if you read the newspaper, if that's what you sign up to, which I don't necessarily sign up to that, I, I like to see what the headlines are, I like to see the information that people are being given but, 
you know, off the back of high inflation and and interest rates is that hard assets are the, the vehicle, I believe, to be investing in right now. And especially, you know, off the back of the last two years that you mentioned, the pandemic, is that, you know, the gates of Australia, for want of a better term, are about to open and immigration is about to increase again. That's what the government has said. But we already have an undersupply of housing. So so what's that going to mean? Where are all these where are all these people that are about to come come into Australia again? Where are they going to live? Where are they going to go? So we have, you know, the undersupply of housing, which is going to push the rental market up further, which is going to push the property market up, which then is going to have a massive effect on property pricing. So, you know, the newspapers saying that property prices are going to crash, you know, I, I, I don't see how that's possible because, you know, we need to know what to buy, where to buy and how to buy it, so to speak. It's, yeah, I'm not sure that answers your question, but sorry, I went off on a tangent. <laughs> Oh, I just think it's extraordinary. And I think you just, you hit a, a really good point there where we cannot predict necessarily. We cannot have a crystal ball. I get that. But I guess from my perspective, growing up, I had a, I guess my education came from my mum, who was a single mum working two or three jobs. She'd put the cash into each envelope according to the mortgage, the the, the power bills, the whatever it was that she, I just remember having envelopes. And I guess the key message I learned from her was don't spend more than you earn as she was raised to pay off a mortgage. Danny's mum was the same, like get a house and get a good job. Let's go back, get a good education, get a good job, buy a house, pay off the mortgage. Neither of my our parents or our teachings growing up were ever about investing or understanding perhaps, you know, taking risks. So in your humble opinion, how do we learn what's a good risk to take? Do some people get really lucky or are some people just really unlucky? Or is there actually a a technique or a process in which you can go through where you take the risk but you're guaranteed return? I like the analogy that you used of the envelopes as well. Um, So... So sorry, there's two parts to that to that question. So there's the envelopes, which I'll come back to. But but is is there is there a guaranteed return on investment? I don't believe there ever is. I believe that it comes down to your risk threshold. I believe that you should only risk what you're prepared to lose, because in risking what you're prepared to lose, you you. you Oh, I don't want to say you can't fail, but 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 the downside will be will be less than if you were you know if you've only got fifty dollars to spend, don't spend that fifty dollars like that. To, to me, that is common sense. Um, so I think, Kimmy, it's it's about understanding what your own values are, understanding what your own risk threshold is, and then understanding how much you are prepared to risk in whatever investment you're doing. You know, there's there's definitely mentors that you can go to there's books that you can read and I think that that's actually what it comes back to as well it's education you need to educate yourself because if you're not educating yourself I'm sorry you're gambling and in gambling you will lose I would suggest but you can win don't get me wrong um but that's not guaranteed. So if you can educate yourself to understand, like I say, all those things, you know, your values, your risk threshold and how much you're prepared to lose, 
then then that's your guarantee. Um, but going back to the envelopes is that there is a good analogy or sorry, not technique that I learned from one of my mentors, which is exactly as your mum did, you know, have an envelope, have, have five envelopes. And on those envelopes, one is for fun or jars, you know, or, or now if it's online, have five different bank accounts that, that when your paycheck comes, you can divide your income accordingly. So one is for fun, one is for holidays, one is for self, one is for investing, and one is for your expenses. They're just five random off the top of my head. And then what you need to decide is based on those five envelopes or accounts or jars that you've created, how much of your income are you going to allocate to each of those five jars every time your income comes in? And then so each of your accounts, and sure, you might split it evenly. You might decide that I'm going to put 20% into my um, savings account for future investing. You know, you need to decide what proportion of you want to put into each of those jars. And that's how you slowly, not slowly, I shouldn't say that, that's how you then accumulate those accounts to spend and proportion accordingly to then, so then you know how much you, how much you can risk, right? Because one of those jars is allocated to investing, because you've got of your four other jars, you've got every everything else allocated for and you've got your expenses covered because that's in one of your five jars. So therefore your, you know, investing account is purely for investing. I, I hope that it makes sense and I've explained that well. I think it's brilliant. I'd add one more envelope to that and that's my tax account. <laughs> I have to separate my tax out, otherwise I may end up spending it. So yeah, I have a tax account as well, but I love that idea. Holidays, that's a funny one because for the last couple of years, none of us have really been able to take a holiday. So that jar should be quite full right now, ready to go for a big holiday or some sort of investment. So I think either way, what you're saying is by allocating funds, it's easy to save little by little than it is to try try and come up with a whole lot of money. And I really appreciate that. I want to move on then. One of the things that you have just launched is, and I know you've done many different businesses and you've had many successes, many failures, and probably like most entrepreneurs I meet, uh, say that failures are a part of success, especially when you learn from them. But your latest enterprise, Ocean Buyers Agency, could you tell us, maybe lead us how you came to doing that? And also, you know, what is it actually about? Share it with us because I'm sure someone listening to this may be very interested to know. Oh, okay. Um, so, so part of my um, my journey has been um, property investing, which I mentioned. So I've been involved in real estate since 2003 uh, and have transacted on many property dealings Australia-wide. So it was through, you know, turning untidy rental properties into high-performing assets that I noticed the need for, you know, some some guidance, some real guidance and support on the buyer's side. Um, and I guess that's how the evolution of Ocean Buyers Agency was created. You know, it was through family and friends saying, well, what are you doing? You look like you know what you're doing. Can you help us find something? Because we don't quite know how to buy or where to buy. So Ocean's Buyers Agency is a boutique and dedicated service where we help people decide the what, the where to buy and the how to buy. And so um, being involved in real estate, like I say, since 2003, I have a long-standing history within the property market and a broad network of industry connections 
And um, so keeping up to date on properties is just what I love and what I do and, you know, assessing markets and, and finding out what's happening or where's good to buy or predicting forecasting, not predicting, predicting potential, um, you know, towns and looking at infrastructure. They're all the things that I just absolutely love to do. So for me, Ocean's Buyers Agency, you know, we exist to search, evaluate and negotiate property purchases on, on the buyer's behalf. Which gives you a real different essence or slant to the real estate agent who's potentially working for the vendor, not the buyer. So you really come in and do all the, dare I say it, the dirty work, as you said, negotiating on behalf of someone who may get emotionally involved, particularly if they're buying an investment, but probably more so their principal place of residence. How have you found that's helped people? What are some of the key things that have come out of having a buyer's agency? So the, the value that the buyer's agent brings is uh, one of them, I should say, is for time poor people. So, so the statistics are that on average a person will spend, and I should say, beg your pardon, people that are just frustrated in looking. So the statistics are that the average person will spend 300 hours searching and trawling the internet looking for their next property, you know, looking at the, oh, that one looks nice, or maybe I should do that one, going to open homes, you know, spending Saturdays driving around in the car, getting the kids in the car, packing them up, going going to sport, coming back, going to open homes. So what I've seen is that it's it's a time-saving element for people that just don't have the time and, like I say, that are just absolutely frustrated. The other advantage is... Um, you know, I call it the buyer's journey. So what happens on the buyer's journey is you say, okay, I only want to spend $500,000. So I go, okay, no problem. Let's talk about what it is that you're looking for. Let's talk about, you know, if that's actually possible. So I can show a client, you know, the properties at 500000 which are not at all up to their expectation because, as we know, some people have um, – Oh, what's that term that we say? Um, champagne budget beer taste? No, something like that. Around the other way, I got that all wrong, but you know what I mean. So on the buyer's journey, you know, you have to. I have to educate people on where the market's at. This is this is what you're going to get for five hundred thousand, but this is this is we may need to go to six hundred thousand as an example. Um, you know, because. And I use those numbers not to freak people out, but but you know the median house price on the Sunshine Coast at the moment is is one million dollars. So, but there are still five hundred and six hundred thousand dollar properties available. Like there's 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 no doubt about it. Um. So yeah, Kimmy, sorry. There's um, you know, what have I seen? It's it's a buyer's journey. It's an education process. It's a you know knowing knowing what's for sale in the market and knowing what the market's doing. There's also you know, I'm not sure if people are aware, but there's an off-market um, market, for want of a better term, that, you know, there are people that aren't listing on realestate.com. You know, there are people that aren't listing on domain because they don't want to go through open homes. They don't want to have to clean their house every week. They don't want people coming through. So there's an off-market um, opportunities that exist that, 
normal mums and dads, normal buyers just aren't aware of. And that is the, um, you know, one of the benefits of engaging a buyer's advocate to act for and on your behalf. Well, there's certainly a lot of television shows at the moment um, that that inspire us and it intrigues me that these buyer's agent are selling, you know, $35 million homes and it's insane <laughs> how much and I can see why those people definitely save their clients a lot of time and money. But also the other thing you mentioned was negotiation. And one of the hardest things when you're emotionally involved in anything, whether it's property, whether it's buying a car, whether it's upgrading something, even, um, you know, getting coaching or some sort of mentorship, there's the power for negotiation. And I think when emotions are involved, am I right in saying that sometimes we may not necessarily serve ourselves in our best interests? You are absolutely right. And it's a really good point that you that you bring up because, yes, negotiation, it is a skill. It is a skill that you either you have it and you learn it or you just don't have it at all. And you're right. When you're buying your own home, when you're about to move into a new home and you're excited and you've found the one, you've spent all the time looking and then you go in to negotiate, you actually don't negotiate. Nine times out of ten, you'll pay over and above what the actual market price is for that house because you're so emotionally attached, you're so emotionally involved in the purchase of that house and you're actually probably sick of looking at houses, to be fair, possibly. But, yeah, you're so emotionally involved that you pay over and above it. So you're absolutely right. Negotiation is an emotional it can be emotional if if you're acting on your own on your own behalf and and again you know so therefore knowing the market and knowing what's selling and you know having that research um, conducted for you can absolutely a save you money but b also make sure that you are paying the right price for you know the right property that you've found mm. or that your buyer's agent or buyer's advocate has found for you with you yeah, I bet. And can you tell me then, how does a buyer's agent differ to a real estate agent then? I mean, we've mentioned a few things, but why would a person not just go direct to the real estate agent? Look, there's absolutely no reason why you can't go direct to the real estate agent, but a real estate agent acts for and on behalf of the seller or the vendor. So the person selling the home, the person who owns the home. So a real estate agent just wants to sell houses. They're not actually, they're not negotiating on your behalf. They just want you to buy the house. Um, whereas the buyer's agent or the buyer's advocate acts exclusively for the buyer. And the two should never act for both parties because that would be a conflict, conflict of interest and it is actually um, against the licence of a real estate agent, which, you know, a buyer's agent acts under a real estate agent licence as well. Um, so I hope that's explained it. A real estate agent is a selling agent and a buyer's agent or buyer's advocate is a buyer's agent or, you know, exclusively for and on behalf of the buyer. Yeah, it's a really good distinction and possibly something that our listener may have just learnt or certainly uh, confirmed what they believed. So I want to move into the next part then. The market has gone crazy down under the property market. I can only speak for what's happened on the Sunshine Coast um, and possibly all around Australia. But have you noticed, were you surprised at what's happened here or is that 
uh, I guess, is that normal for, for going through pandemics or wars or crisis or anything else that we've experienced? Is this a typical pattern? It's a very good question. Um, was I surprised? I guess at first I was surprised because, you know, we went into the pandemic and nobody knew what was going to happen. And anybody who predicted it, I, you know, look, I would question that. So at the start of the pandemic, people, again, the news headlines were property is going to crash. And then what happened was we had, as Bernard Salt terms them, who's a top demographer in Australia, the the Vespers, the virus escapees. So we had, but anyway, sorry, I'll continue down this track. So we had the virus escapees. So we had our friends from the southern states, from Victoria and all over Australia, to be fair, that were coming to Queensland, which just saw this massive increase, this massive demand for houses um, in Queensland and on the Sunshine Coast. Now, me being on, having lived on the Sunshine Coast for 16 years, I can honestly say that it's taken 16 years for the Sunshine Coast to experience growth of this, you know, extremity and capacity. But to be fair, we had to get here in order to, you know, be at par with the rest of Australia. There is true value in, in homes and in property and on the Sunshine Coast. And I think also for me attached to that is that the Sunshine Coast for the longest time was just tourism. Our main industry was tourism. But now we have all of this infrastructure spending that is happening on the Sunshine Coast that has changed us or, or pivoted us from being um, 100% tourism to now we have a have a corporate flavour that's coming in. You know, we're attracting corporate companies, bigger companies to the Sunshine Coast. And with that has brought bigger demand. And like I say, the infrastructure spending, you know, the Bruce Highway, the, the airport. And I think you talked about all of these recently with um, one of your other guests, uh, Jen Swain, if I'm not I'm incorrect. Um, That's right. So, you know, we've had all of this beautiful infrastructure spending that people either, you know, love or hate, but it's progress. So, you know, property prices, but it, but it was... It was worldwide we saw. We, we're not alone on the Sunshine Coast. You know, we saw this worldwide, this demand for for property. Was I surprised? To be completely honest, yes. To see that extremity across the world of property prices to go up, going up, um, I was. But now we also have, you know, the, the supply issues, um, the supply chain issues. So, um so now we're moving into, you know, the, the impact that the last two years has had on um, building and construction pricing and supply costs. So for me now is the opportunity that um, the education process for me in do you buy existing, an existing dwelling or are you going to wait and, and build new? Because if you wait and build new, at this point in time, today as it stands, you know, you can't get a fixed price contract on a new build. There's there's land that, you know, you may have have a thousand dollar deposit on, but we don't know when that's actually when those blocks are actually going to be released because there's still um, development that needs to happen on the roads and things. So, you know, I foresee that there will be uh, an increased demand on existing dwellings that, you know, may be a little bit of a reno, may be, you know not quite to your satisfaction, but at least there's an opportunity there to buy and get in the market in, and have four walls around you and a roof over your head rather than waiting, you know, two years 
potentially for your new home to be built. And I was actually talking to someone today and that is actually what's happened. They, they have been waiting two years for their new build um, to happen and they haven't even turned soil yet because they can't find a builder to build it for them because they can't get the prices confirmed on what their bill's going to be. And that's, again, the knock-on effect because then the, the banks, people that need to borrow money from the bank to do that build, they... The bank needs to have a contract in order for you to lend, for them to lend against that for your building and construction loan. But if your bank has given you a loan at a certain limit and now you go back to the bank and say, well, actually, guess what? Building and construction costs have increased 30% because that is honestly what's happened over the last two years. Um, so you go back to the bank and say, well, our, actually, our contract's gone up 30%. The bank actually says... I'm sorry, but they don't say, don't say sorry. They say, too sad, so sad, too bad. We, we're not giving you that extra money. We're, you're, not, you're not at that level. You don't, we don't have that capacity to lend you that money. So there's the potential that there's going to be houses that are unfinished or you need to go to the bank of mum and dad and ask for that extra money or you need to somehow, I don't know, win the lotto or find that extra money from somewhere to finish your house because building and um, construction costs have gone up. It's a little bit scary for people that are then being told we need another 70 grand to complete the build. I've heard of people that this is happening to, and whilst for some people that works, as you say, that can knock some people out of the market. There just seems to be this big mosh pit of unknown reality and potentiality. It's it's kind of like a bit of a game at the moment, it seems. But one of the things that I was taught in one of my mentoring groups, when you are looking at property, is to look at the pie, the population growth, the infrastructure, and the economic viability. Is there work? Is there more potential, as you say, for the corporate sector? And I think that's what may, has made the Sunshine Coast because it's also got a couple of X factors, the weather, the coast, the people, like it really is a beautiful place. But I do have a question and it may seem really simple and I hope my audience doesn't laugh at me with this one, but <laughs> I, what I don't understand, Keita, is that you said there's a big movement from, say, Victorians or New South Welshmen to the Sunshine Coast or to Queensland. So they're selling their houses to move up here, possibly getting way better value for their money, especially if they're in the city, what their value is. But then to sell that, someone's had to buy that at that price. So where has that person come from? And all I'm hearing is the younger you are, the harder it is for us to get into. Who has a million bucks in their back pocket in their mid-20s or the potential to get a loan for up to a million dollars when you're so young, is this going to cripple our youths, our young people ever getting into housing? And if so, what's that going to do to the housing population? All valid questions and all very good questions. So my understanding, you took, let's break this down. So my understanding is the people that are selling in Victoria, the people that are buying, the people that are selling in the cities, the people that are buying are the people who are a little bit further out from the city. That's That's what I've heard. I can't I can't confirm that, but that's what I've heard. So there's been this selling the city, the people that are outside of buying them, and so the people in the city are moving moving north, so to speak. Then how can people afford the million dollars? I've also heard that that's where I mentioned the term the bank of mum and dad. So there's lots of, um, not lots, beg your pardon, it's, in inverted commas, the baby boomers. The baby boomers have, have grown the wave. The baby boomers have made 
um, a lot of money or a lot of wealth over the last, you know, decade, so to speak. And so it's the bank of mum and dad. So the, you know, the 20 year olds now are going to mum and dad and saying, well, hello, mum and dad, how are you? Wouldn't it be good if you could lend me some money? There's also a potential that if, you know, mum and dad don't have the money, there's, you know, depending on which bank you go to or, or lender, your mother and father can, or whoever, I beg your pardon, you can have a guarantor for um, for your loan, which can help you get in. There's different loan to value ratios, so you know you can. There's um, so you can borrow up to ninety five percent of your home loan purchase in some instances. Absolutely, it depends on your affordability. It depends on the bank's assessment criteria. Um, I'm not giving financial advice, but this is these are what this is what's possible. Um, who can afford a million dollars? You're absolutely right. I absolutely agree with you. It comes back to income. It comes back to serviceability. It comes back to what what job are you what job are you doing? Where do you want to live? You know, yes, we have a median um, price of a million dollars, but again, it depends on which statistical outlet or which statistical company you're looking at to get that. Um, to get that value from. There are, like I said earlier, you know, there are still houses available at 500,000 and 600,000. They might be smaller, they might not have, you know, water views, but they're available. So I guess the point is you need to work out what you can afford, which goes back to our five envelopes or our five jars. You know, what can you afford? What are your expenses? Do, do your budget. Get to understand money. Get to understand how much you've got coming in each fortnight or each month, however often you get paid, to then work out what you're going, what's going out, to then work out how much you can afford. Um, you know, there is an affordability issue, Kimmy. Without a doubt, there's an affordability issue. And that is one thing that has been talked about, you know, ever since I've been in property, to be fair, there needs to be a better solution. What is that solution? People are trying to come up with it. You know, there's container homes, there's tiny homes, there's there's communities that, you know, are now buying land and, and sharing land, you know, but again, that has its own issues as well because there are some councils that won't allow communal living on, you know, on um, if that's a rock, community living I think is the term, you know, that how many dwellings can you have on a piece of land? You know, that comes back to the planning scheme. So I think that there's a whole issue around that affordability matrix that needs to be solved that does require, you know, the governments, local, state and federal to be involved and to listen to the community about, you know, what potential solutions can be. For, but, but then also, Kimmy, I think that I believe there has to also be more of a, um, oh, what's the right, more of a, I'm not sure the right word, sorry, but more of an understanding of where where you can afford to live. And and that for me that means, you know, we, we are a bit of a community or or a um we are a community now that wants to have everything brand new and we want, you know, two bathrooms, four bedrooms and a double garage for one person or two people. You know, like like is that is that really necessary? Our needs have become bigger. Our our desire to have everything flash and nice has become 
you know, has become bigger as well. So I think that there needs to be a little bit of a, a check with oneself to say, well, okay, do I really need that big of a house? Do I really need that big flashy thing right now? But, but, but that's me, Kim, as well. You know, that's my belief. That's my values. And I'm not trying to inflict my values and beliefs on someone else. I guess I need to be careful of doing that as well. But I think it's important to check in with yourself and, and determine, you know, like we say, all those things that we just talked about. What is the affordability? Can I, what can I afford to, to spend to get into the market now? And it's, it's a stepping stone. It's a step to get in to then be able to afford the next, the next step up and the next step up. I think what I'm hearing, if I'm correct, is this is what the beauty of a buyer's agent is. In all honesty, you take out that stress and you give us those choices and the money that it costs me to spend or to account for a a buyer's agent sounds to me like it's worth every bloody penny and what you think might be an investment, this is one of the largest investments you'll ever make. So to have somebody who's already in the know, particularly if this is not your area of expertise, I've just started to know not only are buyer's agent fashionable, they're actually necessary because there's also a hell of a lot of greedy people out there. And there's a hell of a lot of people who want more than what they can, or like you said, they've got inflated ideas of what they can approve or um, and what they can afford. So I I just want to give you a high five and shout out to you and really um, cherish an industry that's relatively new. Would you suggest then that the buyer's agency world is quite new in relativity compared to perhaps the actual real estate market? And if so, give us a little bit of more of a plug as to why else we should come to a buyer's agent. I want you to really help us here because for many people, they won't realize they can afford one. Yeah, I think that buyers agents have been around for um, for a little while. I think it's that you know buyers agent, buyers advocate. Uh, I think that it's people haven't realised that they have have been there. Perhaps that is is the difference. Um, so you know, and I and I believe too that you know maybe the term is a little bit newer to. Queensland, for example, whereas in Victoria and New South Wales, they've been there for for a long time and and also worldwide, to be fair. So, so yes, I think they're around. I think that it's just that, like you mentioned, it's on TV now, so people are talking about it. And I think also with, you know, maybe the demand has been um, increased over this last two-year period because people couldn't physically get to locations that they wanted to buy. Um, So they were using other people to help them to source and to inspect. So that's definitely, you know, one one advantage of, you know, using the buyer's agent. If you can't get there, then you have someone else go go and do that for you. But, you know, I guess the other, you know, the plugs, as you say, for, for the buyer's agent industry or the buyer's advocacy industry is that, you know, the, we're committed to you. You know, we we up, I'll hold our integrity and commitment to the buyer. We act for and on your behalf. I only take on a limited number of clients at any given time to make sure that each person, each client has, you know, a high level of service dedicated to them and to get their outcome. I'm 
outcome driven. I want to make sure that they get their house in the quickest possible time. I want to make sure that, you know, we fulfill their their dreams and their desires. And then there's the attention to detail. So, you know, it's our attention to detail and the experience that we have as buyers advocates. And as you said, being in the market that we save our clients the time and the unnecessary heartache and stress that can sometimes come with purchasing a property. And then it's the extensive network, you know, being on the Sunshine Coast for 16 years, being involved in property since 2003, you know, I know the property market. You know, I have a broad network of industry connections and my relationships and experience with those, you know, networks helps our my clients to, you know, help them get their best best match possible for, as I mentioned, you know, properties that are on the market and off the market. Because I can tell you right now, if you're if you're a mum and dad buyer, you're unfortunately not going to have access to those off-market properties as, as an example. And then we mentioned the negotiating, you know, get somebody on your team, somebody who's batting for you, somebody who's going in to bat for you to make sure that you are getting the right price, to make sure that, you know, we have done the research to identify what the price of that house is. And then I guess in conclusion, I just love property. I love property. I love numbers. And I love helping other people. I genuinely love helping other people. If I can help you and you have a smile on your face and that's as little as making caramel bliss balls for friends or, you know, helping them to tidy their house. If I can make you happy, then my world is complete. But in loving in loving property, as I mentioned also, you know, I have that analytical brain where I just love crunching numbers and being driven by results, I have a genuine desire, as I mentioned, to help you and I'll be there every step of the way to help you achieve, you know, your desires as well. I love the acronym that you also live by, which is you give people hope and that word hope also stands for helping other people every day. And that, Keita Gibson, is something you do extraordinarily well. I know that property, money, has an energy, has an entity, shares, all of the different ways, gold, silver, whatever it is that we invest in and hopefully accumulate to create a sense of wealth where we're not dependent on other, perhaps institutions, governments, etc. But one of the things I do believe in the act of educating oneself is actually a really beautiful act of self-love. And given this is the self-love podcast, I would absolutely love to hear what is your definition of self-love? My definition of self-love is in alignment with um, self-care, you know, looking after yourself and knowing when it's time to stop, knowing when it's okay to say no, just, you know, I I, I actually don't want to do that today and I'm going to say no. And so putting up your barriers is is my definition of self-love. I love it. And I think it's such a poignant way for us to come to the end of this beautiful podcast. You and I have many deep and meaningful conversations along with the gorgeous Cindy O'Meara. We have many wonderful coffees where we talk all of these things. And I just want to thank you personally, publicly, how much I appreciate your knowledge, your insight, your passion, and most of all, your care. You really are an incredible soul. And the reason why I really wanted to share you today 
is so that if anybody is out there looking for property or wanting to have someone in their corner, helping them to educate themselves, and certainly in the realm of self-love, you can look no further than the beautiful Kira who does go beyond the Sunshine Coast. She'll do her homework. I've watched her create results for people looking for lifestyle blocks. I've seen her create results for people that are interstate, international, people that are moving to this country. So please look up if it's, you know, look up for these beautiful buyers, advocates, and really make sure you take the time. After all, it is one of the largest and biggest investments you'll ever make. So on that note, my darling, uh, what is your final message to the Self-Love Podcast listener? And could you perhaps share with us your favorite quote? My final message is to take care of you. Take the time to have time. And my final quote is, if it's to be, it's up to me. Such a beautiful thing because ultimately, even though you and many other service-orientated people can do things for you, it's up to you to take on the advice. It's up to you to actually take action. And it's up to you to really give it the final implementation. So couldn't think of better advice to finish on, you sweet soul. Thank you so much for being on the Self Love Podcast. I love being with you. We've been incredible incredibly well behaved I might add and we've been very good on this podcast Um, but I just wanted I want the world to know how much I love you and appreciate you thank you sweetheart thank you Kimmy love you too thanks for listening to the self-love podcast be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com that's the word 20 and the number 8.com take good care This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.